If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Britain is a land full of lost settlements, villages, towns and even cities. In his new book, Shadowlands, A Journey Through Lost Britain, historian Matthew Green explores some of these bygone places and considers why and how they disappeared. Dave Musgrove put in a call to Matthew to find out more. He started by asking Matthew how he chose the lost places that feature in the book. I look at 10 of them in the book. There are, in fact, a lot more, but I didn't want it to turn into an encyclopedia. Um, I kind of curated um, 10 memorable stations on, on what I call my itinerary of destruction. And I wanted to look at, you know, you, you might be like, well, how do you know which ones to include? I, I had quite a strict metric, which was I wanted to look at places that had imploded rather than exploded. Because if you think about it, you know, you could say Roman London is a lost city, um, or you could say kind of Colchester or Bath. But the thing about those places is that they, you know, there may have been a gap in their development, but they did expand outwards and they became at least a nucleus for later cities. I wanted to look at places that had had, had quailed um, before the historical process imploded inwards. And now there's either nothing left or there's very little left indeed to see because these are the sorts of places that I think are hidden and people don't generally know about but they have had an impact on on our landscape and on our history. The opening line of your book is one that I I liked. Uh, It is, there is something thrilling about a lost city or ghost town, something that draws us in. And and I would agree with that sentiment. But Mm. um, you've you've investigated this. What is it, do you think, that uh, so fascinates us uh, about the concept of a lost settlement? Well, firstly, I'm, I'm really glad you like the opening sentence because I probably <laughs> went through about a million discarded ones and, and, and it actually came up with that one almost just spontaneously. You know, sometimes the, the, the unlaboured sentences are the best ones. But in terms of this question of the universal allure of the lost city, you know, um, we, we think of Atlantis, we think of kind of lost Egyptian cities, perhaps we think of Pompeii. But I, I would say, you know, as succinctly as possible, they're sort of titillating um, but not necessarily in a positive way, because they seem to prognosticate our own likely ruin. So when you see lost cities, it's almost like time is in abeyance or time is on hold. Um, and obviously, we're interested in it from a historical perspective. But it seems to have this power 
over us because we think, like, goodness, you know, what if one day some of our own towns and cities are left kind of faintly penciled into the grass or more pertinently underwater? So I, I think that's one of the reasons, but on a metaphorical level, they're sort of emblems of transience and and and, and mortality and a sense that, you know, <laughs> that we shouldn't think of as, as more time goes on, this kind of inexorable march of progress, you know, this sort of Whiggish view of history, there's a lot of lost causes, dead ends, and false starts. And I think that's important historically, but I, I think people can relate to that in their own lives as well, with the sort of products of mistakes and failures as much as of great triumphs and successes. And is is it a modern fascination with lost settlements and cities? You mentioned Atlantis, uh, or is it something which has gone through out the, the you know the entirety of the human condition? Do you think? It's uh, a very good question. I, I mean, I, I think it's. I wouldn't say it's modern, but it stretches back to at least the 18th century, the Romantic period, because obviously there needs to be a bit of a gap between these town cities islands villages being lost being buried drowned decimated um you know th- there needs to be to get because th- there's a vo- there's an empirical void if you take the city of donich you know the medieval city a lot of the records the parish records were swept off that cliff along with so much of the city um so myths begin to build up there's a kind of empir- empirical void into which myths flow um and then certainly by the time i'd say actually the the Renaissance, um, there's a real interest in lost places. One of the ones I look at, again, Dunwich, um, the, the great horseback topographer, John Stowe, who famously chronicled London, he's sent to Dunwich on a fact-finding mission. You know, he's like, well, did it, did it have 50 churches? Did it have a mint? Did it have like... Um, and, and they begin to try to get to the um, empirical truth you know, to this day, there's myths. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening will, will, will think of, you know, this idea that if you stand on the cliffs of Donich, you're meant to be able to hear the 50 bells sounding from the deep. Um, obviously, that would be difficult, just in and of itself, but there were only ever seven churches, so um, especially so. Um, so, yeah, I think it's basically Renaissance onwards, but um, it's been exacerbated, I would say, in recent decades because of the effects of the climate crisis um you know a quintessential lost city is drowned we think of atlantis and you know lots of reports say that our you know our own capital city might be largely underwater by the end of the century if not sooner so it, it, it's taken on a sort of menacing edge but the the fascination i would say stretches back to the renaissance Okay. Uh, You've mentioned Dunwich a couple of times there. We'll come back to that. So listeners, hold that thought um, if you're not familiar with what Dunwich is, and we'll we'll come back and talk about it in a minute. Um, So... Uh, I'm going to throw, throw another quote at you from, from your book. Uh, mm. you, you say in the introduction, a map of Britain in 1225 would show thousands of settlements, not just villages, but towns and cities too, that do not appear on today's charts or which exist only as a shadow of their former selves. So that's mm-hmm. a pretty big scale um, we're talking about here in terms of abandoned yep. settlements. Um, mm-hmm. Were there particular moments in British history where um, places became abandoned. Uh, there were, um, and in, in terms of clusters, there are particular pressure points. Sometimes, literally, the transition between the medieval warm period and the Little Ice Age was accompanied by um, inimically tempestuous weather that put pay not just to Dunwich, but places like Old Winchelsea, um, Old Ravenza. Um, elsewhere as well that's one thing um 
a number of places, believe it or not, were deliberately drowned in the 20th and 19th century um, to pave the way for industrial progress because places like Liverpool wanted a new source of drinking water, so they drown you know, the, the Welsh-speaking village of Capelcaelin um, in North Wales. Um, but perhaps the two biggest um, mediums of oblivion, is, is what I'd rather histrionically call them, um, would be um, in the wake of the Black Death, um, you get the rise of what are called deserted medieval villages, of which there are at least 3,000 just in England alone. And lots of people seem to think that these were wiped out with a black death and, you know, the, 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 this disease billowed through the land and people's buboes exploded and villages turned into a great pile of rotting timbers and sort of Boschian scenes. But that very rarely actually happened. It's much more to do with the long-term economic consequences, such as because uh, demand for labour massively outstripped supply, uh, labourers became more mercenary. They could demand higher wages and landowners were like, well, why should we? You know, we can just convert the lands to pasture and um, given the increasing price of of wool. Um, so, so thousands and thousands of villages were hollowed out because of that, um, the enclosures. Um, that's one. Also, think about the Second World War. Um, we had to have lands to train troops for the D-Day landings. So you get these great sort of military tumours um, carving their way through the landmass. And it's amazing to say about 20% of the entire landmass of the United Kingdom were, were appropriated by the military in the early 1940s. All the villages within, within not quite all of them, but a lot of them, uh, forcibly evicted, zombified, and much of that has never been given back. So we identify, or I identify throughout the book, that these mediums of oblivion, and it's kind of chilling to, to think which ones might, might, might still come back to haunt us in, in the decades and centuries ahead. So you've, you've talked about some sort of big... Uh, societal trends there or big events, big historical events that led to specific periods when when lots of places did become abandoned. I guess there, there would also be specific local conditions that might apply to certain places. Um, did, you, did you find a lot of that, the way places that, that become abandoned for specific local conditions and reasons? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. It, it, it's not all about uh, the big general trend. It's t- sometimes exactly, as you say, due to the specificities of what's going on. Um, I mean, if you take Trelec in the Welsh marches, uh, extraordinary. No, no one really knows where it's gone, though these rental rolls from 1288 that, if they're true, claim that it was probably the, the, the second biggest town in the whole of Wales. Um, and yet if you go there today, it's this, it's there's a sort of sense of mystical tranquility. It's sort of sleepiness incarnate. And you're sort of like, where on earth has this city gone? Then in 2002, moles started digging up chards of medieval pottery and this actually provoked a archaeology graduate to, to buy the whole field and dig it up and and excavate what he assumed was the heart of this lost city. But that was in the Welsh marches, disputed territory. It's been called the Wild West of Britain. The um, colonising Anglo-Normans set up, uh, you know, iron mining there to, to mine weapons and munitions for their campaigns to crush the Welsh. Um, but then the, the declared dynasty died at Banachburn, um, and the, the actual city itself got attacked by the native Welsh and was ravaged by plague. So that slowly sank beneath the soil. So specific conditions and geography contributed to that. And of course, have you been to St Kilda? 
um, in the Outer Hebrides? I'm, I'm afraid I haven't. It's on my on my to do list. Oh, place you will like be going. Go. You'll be going after this podcast. <laughs> um, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's a terrifying journey to get there. The remotest part, highest cliffs in Britain, um, and the specificity specificities of its location um, meant that it, there had been this relatively sort of um, self sustaining, quite egalitarian community um, that had existed there, but. With, with, with the arrival of tourists, particularly um, in the late Georgian, early Victorian period, um, they began to introduce them to new concepts like money and luxuries and sweet sugar, tobacco, which kind of undermines this autarky that they'd maintained um, and meant that uh, they they basically no longer wanted to just like grab the, the fomars and the puffins and the um, gannets from the cliffs, but they were instilled with wanderlust and a, a sense that an easier life was possible its extreme geographical location began to mitigate against it. So in 1930, they actually very sadly drowned all their dogs in the bay, only 36 islanders left, and, and they evacuated it. So um, in those two cases, certainly, it's it's not always to do with these big trends. Um, and, and some of the stories are, 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 are very sort of unpredictable. I mean, Winchelsea, have you been to that one? It's, it's opposite Rye. Um, no, no? Ag- again, you've got me there. No, I've never been. <laughs> okay, you've got you've got your itinerary of destruction. But I mean, most people, indeed, when I went, the the lady that ran the guest house was like telling me about Rye, which everybody knows about. But Winchelsea's was was this huge, swaggering kind of entrepot of medieval wine. There was an old Winchelsea that was built on a spit. It was clawed off by these medieval sea storms into the deep. But then Edward the First was so enamoured with this place that he rebuilt it or translated it onto a hill further inland and it was forged to this rather extraordinary monumental gridiron layout like a kind of medieval manhattan and it's an amazing place all these wonderful wine caves that were once alive with kind of lute music and different types of wine from gas they called it the exterminator of the world's sorrows back then um and it flourished but then um the the harbor the tidal harbor regressed so the sea that had destroyed it once inundated at once retreated and and then there was nothing they could do about it it was just this port of stranded pride as it's been called um and again that was very much to do with the specifics of its location and and the nature of the trade with wine as well because there was a uh, with the outbreak of the hundred years war they could no longer trade so easily with france so in that case too very specific stories and one, one of the conclusions from it all is you never really know what's in the shadow of oblivion um until it's too late none of these None of the people that lived there really knew that um, they, they were imperiled. Um, I mean, the first thing the, the residents of Capel Kalin knew about it was reading it in a newspaper a couple of days before Christmas, 1955. You know, your village is going to be drowned. No one had told them. So it can sneak up upon you. Um, and it's rather unsettling. Mm. But at least they got some advance warning, uh, or at least they knew yeah. what was going on. I mean, going back to Winchelsea, did the people know what was that? Presumably, they could see that uh, trouble was afoot with the silting up of the harbour. Yes, I think it must have been unnerving when they saw that the, the, the bigger ships could no longer get into the harbour and they were beached in the mud. So um, that that was ominous. And 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 I'd say actually, a, a old Winchelsea. You know, struck by storms from pretty much from the 1250. The, the monk Matthew Paris, really good at evoking these furious sea storms, um, and more and more and more of that got chipped away. Uh, and 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 there's this rather memorable, haunting words where Edward the verse says, you know, like much of it is sunk, and the rest is hopeless, long to stand. Um, so 
they, they kind of knew, but not not always. Um, and there are indeed some places I look at, we've got absolutely no idea why they became abandoned. The prehistoric settlement of Scarabray on Orkney, um, it was preserved in sand for almost 5,000 years. It was basically found in a sand dune, <laughs> which a storm ripped off in 1850. Everyone assumed, well, there were, you know, that, that's why it was destroyed because there was a sandstorm and everyone had to leave but that doesn't really make sense because you could just dig the sand out so we don't know whether there was some plague whether uh they, they re-embraced the nomadic lifestyle whether they went to live in a different kind of settlement we, we, we just don't know so it, it's not always a clear picture still to come on the history extra podcast London became Lunden Vic, which is where Covent Garden is today. And the original shell became this sort of monstrous overgrown place with, with, with brambles and infested with Vikings and even wolves. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now, now I have been to Scarabray, so I can, okay, I can finally say I've been to one of these places. And I tell yeah. you, Scarabray is an amazing place, isn't it? An amazing place to visit. And that's one. Of, so basically, that's what you're doing in your book is you're exploring these these uh, these places that you uh, that you talk about. And that, that's the beauty of the book. You go and have a look, and you and you tell us what you can see. So in these places, how how often is there something to actually see nowadays on the ground of these abandoned sites? Well, there's not always anything to see, but there's certainly always something to feel. Um, I mean, Dunwich, uh, the medieval city, um, once one of the principal urban settlements in East Anglia. I mean, literally, that 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 when, when the first sea storms struck, it precipitated a process of coastal erosion, which meant that by 1922 there was just this sole ghostly fragment of the sole surviving church, which just toppled off. Then there was basically nothing apart from Greyfriars, but that was outside the town and a rather fetching leper chapel. That was outside the town. There's nothing there, but you can go and stand on the cliff and stare out and just imagine the lost city mouldering beneath the rippling waves of the North Sea. And, 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 and artists and writers have been doing that for years. Henry James was drawn there and he said the, the, the minor key is struck with such felicity it leaves no sigh unbreathed and there's a real presence in what is missing. So in that case... You need to use your imagination. But in other places, as you say, there's actually quite a lot left to see. So Scarabray, as you know, luckily, there are hardly any uh, trees, I think that's right, on, on Orkney. So everything was made out of stone. Um, and you can peer in and exquisitely preserved in, in this. I mean, you, you can see dresses and bed frames and fireplaces and this sort of mellow domesticity brings a flicker of familiarity through the, the cold abyss of millennia. So you can really imagine it. Um, if you go to somewhere like Winchelsea, it's, you know, it's still there, but it's a village. I, I describe it in the book as a spectral echo of, of, of it and its medieval grandeur. You can still feel the grid layout, but it, it, it's very leisure. When I was there, it was sort of retired oil executives um, talking about past 
military glories and medieval Winchelsea. It was a very strange place. Um, and, and it just stops just when the town was getting going at what was called Monday Market. It, it just melts away. And you find these incredible shards just in the field, like they've been shot from out of space and they've landed and crash landed in the belly of this field, which were once monasteries and leper colonies. And, and then you find a gate, which was once one of the main gate. And it's just marooned in these lonely green fields. And, 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 and that really sort of it's sad but it, it moves you um obviously someone like Capel Kalin drowns uh again it's just a reservoir some of them I mean you would visit at your own peril um my seventh chapter is about this mysterious military enclave called Stanta in Brecklands in Norfolk and Suffolk which was a cluster of villages um, taken over by the military in the 1940s and zombified and turned into a peculiar thing. They turned it into a Nazi village in the 1940s, a Soviet village in the 1980s. And until recently, there was a vivid simulacrum of an Afghan village replete with amputee actors playing the victims of suicide bombers and um, synthetic aromas, that kind of thing. I mean, you, you, it's very hard to get in there. And what one would be advised not to try and climb over the perimeter fence. Um, but in all the places, there's, there's something to feel, if not to see. That's what I would say. Mm. And w- one of your other places, uh, again, which I have been to, so I'm going to I'm going to um, pick myself up. Warren Percy, um, up yes. in up in Yorkshire, a beautiful place, uh, a DMV, mm. a deserted medieval yes. village, and there is something to see there, isn't there? You can see uh, the the lines of the street layout, mm. and you can see some of the uh, some of the, the the foundations of some of the houses there. So tell us about Warren Percy and, and what's to see there. Well, Warren Percy was one of my favourites, actually. Not not least because of the sign. Did you see the signpost? Just this, this, it's this curious, just a tiny little signpost on the main road that just says "deserted medieval village" and points <laughs> down a track, yeah. almost like it's a, it's a prank or something. So you walk down this bumpy track over a sty, um, and then you're, I mean, you're in the. It's a beautiful locale. It's the Yorkshire world. It's got a certain upland splendour that's quite at odds with the the tragedy and misery of what went on there. But this is one of those places that I was mentioning earlier, ravaged by the Great Death, as they called it, the the rootless phantom that has no um, mercy for fair countenance, as a Welsh poet put it. But the the the, the Black Death only really had a death rate of 50%. I say only really, that's obviously very high, but um, there was no reason why it should have wiped out entire settlements because uh, you, you still had one in every two people alive. They're not going to build new places from scratch. They can just go back. Um, so it, it weathered that, um, but gradually went into decay, as I said, because the landowners decided to evict these laborers who are asking for too much money to till the fields, replace them with sheep. So you've got all this literature in, in Tudor times. Thomas More's written about man-eating sheep coming in with their fangs and like eating men and <laughs> expelling retinue. And, and he's very unhappy about that. Um, Cardinal Wolsey actually orders an inquisition into the, into the whole thing, which you can hear the voices of the dispossessed. So yes, it was abandoned entirely in the 15th century, and nature has taken its course. So as you, as you will know, you've been there. You, you can see, as you said, the outlines of the streets penciled into the earth. Um, you can feel the curious dips and grooves, and you can see the haunting remains of St Martin's Church Tower, which looks like a beast has chomped it. I, I thought when I went there, um, and just remarkable. And it's one of the most popular deserted medieval villages. And I was fascinated. Why are we drawn to these places? You know, what is it that we see in them? And I, I, I think it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. It's sort of emblem of transience and mortality, 
an awful premonition of of future events. And of course, it has a particular resonance now, having just gone through coronavirus, which mercifully had a much lower death rate than 50%, but nonetheless. Um, it's a sort of place you never forget, though, I think you'll agree. Mm, absolutely. They're places places that make you think, make you stop and think. Mm. Um, and and that's, that's what your book does as well. Thank I wonder... So you've outlined some of the reasons and the causes why places might become abandoned. What mm. what happens to these abandoned places in the in the immediate aftermath of them going out of use as, as settlements? How quickly do they fade from view, or is that something you can't really generalise about? Um, I think you can. It's um, very rarely in this country, at least, do you get places that are just destroyed in um, a sort of bloody click of the fingers, like Pompeii, you know, that, w- that was sudden. Um, even places that were washed away in the sea, like Old Winchelsea, it didn't happen like on one date. It took at least kind of 50 years. Um, so in the majority of cases, one of two things happened. They're either taken over by the military. This is an interesting phenomenon. It happens in St Kilda. It's abandoned in 1913, soon becomes a military base the abandoned villages in Breckland get taken over by the military. So when places become non-places, the whole essence of them becomes more functional. They become ripe for some sort of military takeover. That can happen very quickly. But in general, what happens is a very slow decline. Um, And something we forget, actually, is that, I mean, imagine you're an Anglo-Saxon just wandering around, um, or even someone in the early medieval period, but Britain would have been absolutely littered with the remains of Roman towns and cities, you know, places like Silchester. Um, And this sort of sense that, you know, like a a place either vanishes completely or immediately becomes an attraction um, didn't really, I I don't think really stands. I think generally these are shadowlands, as as, as the book is called. They're, They're sort of liminal spaces that slowly decline. So somewhere like Trelec, it's still there, but it's a tiny village. It would be unrecognisable to the, the iron miners who worked there before. Dunwich, I mean, the, it, it's 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 a tiny little seaside street. It's just a street. You know, this was once a sprawling city. Um, so usually um, a slow decline, but then these places begin to get reimagined and resurrected in the imagination um, centuries later. So Winchelsea and Donich were, in fact, great um, lightning rods for artists, writers, and musicians who are drawn to the kind of allure of decay and the sort of sense of faded grandeur. Um, and then they begin to kind of re- re-establish and recreate the places that had vanished in the popular imagination. Um, so it, it, it's slow and gradual um, rather than a kind of catastrophic um, click of the fingers. But that idea of places living on with a certain folk memory is is an interesting concept, isn't it? You you evoke um, the Anglo-Saxon poem, "The Ruin," um, yes. to sort of to help us understand that. Tell us a little bit about that poem and what that and how that helps us understand how a place might live on after its um, uh, its, its physical usefulness has has passed. Yes, well, th- this is a a poem um, about a ruined Roman town. That's all we can really say with certainty. Um, but it's beautifully evocative. Um, it, it sort of contrasts what the author imagines this place must have been like in its prime, with the steam baths and and the, and the sort of the, the mead cauldrons and, and and the warriors like having having their sort of perfume baths after some great victory, um, with its 
pitiful remains. And you know, it says all those heroes are in Earth's cold grasp. It's 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 kind of macabre, um, but it, it's it's sort of spiritually uplifting that this 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 place has a kind of cathartic power upon the writer and indeed readers. And there's a sort of salutary benefits that they're drawing from it. Um, and it's thought that this was Bath um, from from the way the topography is described. Um, and some a bit of trivia I like about this is that, you know, w- w- one of the ways we know about this is from a edition of it, which which is itself half in ruins. So even the poem itself is kind of half singed and in, in, it just seems kind of rather fitting. Um, but that shows actually even as far as back as the Anglo-Saxon period, people were taking an interest in these ruined places. And L- London, let's not forget, you know, with the fall of the Roman Empire, Londinium became a ghost city. Um, I, I don't really explore it in my book. I evoke it because it's one of these places that has exploded outwards, not inwards. But um, you know, L- London became Lunden Vic, which is where Covent Garden is today. And the original shell became this sort of monstrous overgrown place with, with, with brambles and infested with Vikings and even wolves. And it wasn't for another 300 years until King Alfred led the reconquest in 886. Um, and it kind of struck me in, in, in lockdown when I, I, I used to go for long walks through the, the paralyzed city, the stilled city, and, and, and you'd see the city on the horizon. And, you know, for the first time since then, really, it was it, it stopped dead in its tracks. There was no commerce, there was no movement, there was, it was just this sort of brooding presence on the horizon. And I sort of wondered whether that's kind of a bit like how the Anglo-Saxons would have seen Londinium when, when they were living in this other encampment called Lundenvik. Um, so what, often what, what seems like a a lost cause isn't. I mean, we still have Bath, obviously. We still have London. So um, they hide in plain sight, but it's hard to predict how it's going to turn out. And you, the experience you just described there of, of walking through a, a quiet in London is interesting. It leads me on to my last question about uh, the sort of the contemporary relevances of, of what you've been doing. And you've mentioned them a couple of times in the conversation. You mm. know, we live in... Uh, existential times in terms of you know climate change pandemic um, mm. global war all sorts of things that, that seem to be occupying us and, and 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 very dangerous risks to 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 the generality of our existence what mm. do, what what's what do you take from that how how does the, how do these lost abandoned places that you've visited help us to understand what's maybe going on today yes well i, I i'd say from, from the outset you know it it, it the, my book's not meant to be a sort of tract about climate change or global warming, but it, it it does throw up some deeply unsettling parallels, not least because quite a lot of the places I look at were the victims of just the kind of extreme weather events that are going to become more and more common. Storms um, being the might and coastal erosion as the planet heats. And as some historians would say the storms that destroyed Dunwich and Old Winchester were actually because of medieval climate change. There's a direct parallel. So there's that there. Um, We've also covered um, places that were indirectly, albeit, destroyed by by pandemics. And, you know, it's it's frightening to think that the the, the more sort of deforestation, the more animal habitats move closer to humans, the more likely it is that we could have another pathogen leaping across or even in a melting iceberg. So it could be that we have a whole new fleet of Warren Percy's. Um, And of course, given climate change and the sorts of competition for resources and international conflicts that are going to break out, wars are more likely. So perhaps 
we're going to see more standards, more places become appropriated to prepare us for that. Um, but beyond that, I, th- I think it sort of brings into focus just the precarity of human existence, of perhaps of civilization itself, by looking at all these dead ends and false starts and, and, and places that haven't survived. Um, it just it, it just makes the present seem a bit more sort of quivering um, and, and the future that more terrifying and hopefully will we'll sort of cajole people um, into some kind of action. Um, it's interesting to start with you know, the place you've been to, Scarabray, that, that was one of the first settled communities that, that, that we, it's probably the best preserved Neolithic settlement in, in Northern Europe. And, and, and that period was distinctive because humanity stopped being hunter-gatherers, stopped being nomadic and put down roots, fixed settlements sustained by agriculture. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was a harbinger of civilization, but then it's almost like it's that very same advancement that has caused this climate crisis, which we now find coming back to haunt us. And when one goes to St Kilda, which you must, I'll exhort you again to go to St Kilda, it, it's very because it's a, for me at least it was a vision of the sort of brutally self-sufficient society that we may have to revert back to in the wake of some terrible environmental or nuclear or, or other catastrophe. So um, th- those are the sorts of things I'd say, as, as, as well as shedding a new light on Britain's history through through this un, unexpected angle. Um, it, it's one I hope that we'll, we'll speak to the present day um, and, and, and indeed the future as well. That was Matthew Green. His book, Shadowlands, A Journey Through Lost Britain, is out now, published by Faber and Faber. If you want to know more about the deserted medieval villages and the impacts of the Black Death on Britain, you can find out more on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.